Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. The passage in the book of Philippians that uh, was pressed upon my heart for you as a, as a church family um, is the last part of, of Philippians chapter 2. And so let's go ahead and. Uh, Read that together, and then we'll pray. If you'd like to stand with me, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read starting in verse 12. Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may have less anxiety. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Father, we are grateful that you, in your mercy and your grace, have called us to yourself. What a privilege it is. What manner of love this, that we could be called the sons of God. I ask that you would reveal to us by your Holy Spirit more of who you are, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, that we become more and more like your dear son and reflect the reality of his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and coming again to the world around us. So please enable me by your spirit as I speak, that your church will be built up for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't intend, this is a very long passage, you may have noticed, I don't intend to give a detailed exegesis uh, of this passage. Um, there's a place for that. There's certainly uh, lots of hidden treasures here that uh, we could discover or rediscover at another time. But sometimes there's a risk of, of missing the forest uh, for the trees, right? We're so focused on the little details that we miss the big picture of what's going on here. And this, if you look at a lot of commentaries, they don't have a lot to say on this on this particular passage, especially verses 19 through 30, because they're really self-explanatory. The, the issue here isn't so much understanding as it is application. It's not so much uh, dissecting and trying to understand the meaning of these verses as it is um, rightly being challenged by them and following the example that they set out for us. And so that's my aim this morning, this morning, this evening, this afternoon, um, this morning somewhere in the world. That's my aim, is that we would be challenged to follow the example that is here of these three individuals who are really following the example of Christ. The whole centerpiece of this book is chapter 2, particularly uh, chapter 2, uh, 5 through 11, where we see the identity of Christ, his humiliation and exaltation by the Father to the Father's right, right hand. That, everything in this book really is centering around or, or um, orbiting around this central theme, the central passage. And, and so the rest of chapter 2 really is three examples of how believers are called to imitate Christ, to grasp the reality of what he's done, be impacted by that, understanding that our doing, our, our working is grounded in what he has already done at the cross through his resurrection, and then following that example. And so we see the example of Paul. We talked about being poured out like a drink offering. We see the example of Timothy, who has a genuine concern for the Philippians, unlike anyone else. We see the example of Epaphroditus, who risked his life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Philippian believers, and who was so concerned about them, even when he was sick to the point of death, he's not worried about himself. He's concerned about his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And so that's how this passage is structured. But before we get to these examples, there's this response in verses 12 through um, uh, 12 through 16. And uh, I read that for the sake of context, but I do want to just mention a couple of things here. Uh, in verse 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And this, this passage where I, I believe we're being challenged. Paul is, is not wasting words here. He's, this isn't just filler space before he gets to these three examples. Um, he is giving us some challenges that are going to help clear away some of the debris, some of the things that would hinder us from following the example of Christ and, and also following the example of Paul. And Paul exhorts us in chapter 3, um, verse 17, 
to follow his example. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is not an unbiblical idea. We're a Christ-centered people, but that doesn't mean we don't look to other Christians for an example. Uh, God has actually gifted us. It's part of his grace to us. He's given us examples around us. and We need our brothers and sisters in the church to be able to look different ways that they're following Christ and, and reflecting him and to be able to follow those examples, imitate their faith. And so Paul wants to clear away some of the debris, some of the, some of the, the, the uh, things that tend to hold us up, to get us stuck in this uh, journey towards Christ's likeness. Because ultimately that's what this is about, right? It's being conformed to the image of Jesus. It's, it's about holiness and sanctification. It's about becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so he says, do all things, not some things, but all things without grumbling or complaining. These things are classic examples of sins that hinder us from moving forward. What was it that hindered the Israelites from moving forward when they were in the desert, in the wilderness, in the Old Testament? Grumbling, right? And complaining. And it's interesting. I think Paul clearly has this in mind. Because in the next verse, he says um, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in, a, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's a, a, an exact quote from the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32, where they're talk, he's talking, where Moses is, is uh, recounting the wilderness wanderings. And so I think it's clear from that that Paul has the idea of not just grumbling and complaining in general, but recognizing that our grumbling and our complaining is ultimately complaining and grumbling against whom? Against God. You see that in the, in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. They're complaining ultimately not against Moses or their circumstances, but about the God who brought them into those circumstances. And so I think we need to be confronted with this truth. If we're going to live Lives of sacrifice that would, that would model Christ to those around us. That people would see the beauty and the goodness and the mercy and the compassion and the courage of Jesus Christ in our lives. We need to repent of our grumbling and complaining and recognize that any grumbling and complaining is ultimately against God. You might say, no, I'm grumbling about my fellow Christians that do things that annoy me. Um, or I'm, I'm bitter and upset because of what this brother said or because of what this leader did. To be able to recognize that for what it is, that it is a sin of complaint against God and the circumstances that he has brought us into. Or as leaders in the church, to repent of complaining about people within the church and the issues that they have or their lack of, of commitment. To recognize that for what it is. And I, I want to remind us too of the truth that any circumstance that you are currently facing, any difficult difficulty that you are currently encountering or hardship or something that's brought emotional turmoil into your life, 
that that is something that has been brought into your life by the hand of a sovereign and good God. A father who loves you so much that he's not content to leave you the way that you are, that his goal is to, is to, um, is to bring you through the furnace, that you would be refined. Those rough edges would be brought off, that you would be brought more and more into conformity to his son. All things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We like to, that verse, you know, we like to define all things work together for the good. We like to define good according to our own definition, our own standards, our own perspective. But to understand that in the context of Romans 8, when Paul says God is working, we know, not we think, but we know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. That that good isn't up for us. The, the understanding of what he means by good isn't up to us to define. But Paul actually gives us the definition in the next verse where he says that God, for those God foreknew, uh, he, for, for, for those God predestined, he also foreknew that they might be conformed to the image of his son. That is the ultimate good. Um, that God is working all things together in your life to get you to that, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Not to have a life of fewer health problems or better financial situation. Those are good gifts from God too, not to be despised, but to recognize that the ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so just to have that perspective can free us from grumbling and complaining, questioning, that we would be a, a people who would be blameless and we would shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life or holding forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud or I may boast that I did not run or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Paul here is setting, displaying his own sacrificial heart as an example. Now, this is so important. Don't miss this. I, I don't, um, in, in studying this passage, I'm trying more and more as a preacher not to be concerned about finding some new insight that you've never heard before to impress you with. Um, I mean, if you discover something, obviously there's nothing wrong with sharing it that you've never heard before. But my, my, my heart, my desire is to challenge us with just the simplicity of what we see at face value in this passage. But if there is one thing, if there's one thing that um, I would want you to see that is uh, maybe unique or that you haven't thought about here is the Apostle Paul. We tend to think of Paul as this very cerebral, intellectual guy who's spending all this time writing theological letters, very, um, you know, just everything very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, in my English, um, you know, just kind of in, in his head, um, very cerebral. And we kind of just picture Paul in that way. And here in, in Philippians in particular, we, we, we get, a, we, we really, that vision, if that's your vision of Paul the Apostle, the book of Philippians ought to really um, blow that away. Because 
here we get a glimpse into Paul's heart. Uh, I think more than anywhere else. This guy who had emotions. You know? Those of us who love theology, who love doctrine. Um, sometimes we can tend to see emotionalism and dismiss emotions. Throw the baby out with the bath water. And while we ought to be concerned with emotionalism, emotions for emotion's sake, or just to get worked up and, and have some sort of, create some sort of experience or manipulate ourselves in some kind of experience, we ought to reject that, but we must not reject the reality of emotions that God has created. And, and uh, to be able to feel things, not just think, but also feel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind too, but your heart, right? Your strength, your whole being. And so we see that, I think, with Paul here, that this following Christ for Paul is not just this, this um, intellectual thing, but it's something that involves his whole being, his feelings, his emotions. And then Paul gives us the example of Timothy. He says, I have no one else like him. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He's proven his worth. He is, verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And I would just ask, this is not like anything, some deep insight. But again, so often I think we get distracted by all the little trees and we miss the forest. What we need to look at here is say, is that me? Do I have that heart? Do I take a genuine interest in other people? Like Timothy. And if not, God, would you confront me, would you convict me, would you change me, would you bring me back to the cross, to the one, and put my eyes upon the one who actually thought of me, who laid aside, who humbled himself and, and uh, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Put my eyes on that one, that I would be able to be transformed by the power of his spirit in me have a genuine concern for other people? Do you genuinely care about others? Simple example, and I know it may sound super basic, but we need to be reminded of it. When someone's talking to you, are you primarily concerned about the next thing you're going to go on to do or what you want to say and how you're going to respond? Or are you taking a genuine interest in listening to them and hearing their heart? Are you praying and saying, Lord, direct me by your Holy Spirit. Help me to listen well to this person. Help me be able to have insight in how I might be able to encourage them based on what they're sharing with me. And Lord, help me to be humble because maybe this is a person that just talks a lot in my perspective, right? From my perspective, they're just full of air and they're pretty immature in their faith. And so I just got to be a good Christian and grit my teeth and get through this? Or is it, you know what, Father? I know that I have not attained all this, just like Paul says in chapter 3. Right? I press on towards the goal. Not that I've already attained it, but this one thing I do, pressing on, is that your attitude? I haven't arrived. This is a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. This brother or sister has things that they could teach me. Lord, you might want to teach me something through this conversation. Help me to be humble and to have a genuine concern in this person as my brother and sister. And then he gives us the example of Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger 
and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. This should always stand out to us. Here Epaphrodites is ill and he's distressed because they found out. Too often, if I'm honest, when something bad happens to me, and this is shameful to admit, but confess it to you this morning, that this, this evening, I preach in the morning now, so I'm used to that, but um, too often, I actually want other people to find out that I've got an issue. Um, and maybe you don't struggle with that. Praise God. But there's a part of me that when someone finds out that I sacrificed and I've suffered as a result, there's a part of me that is glad when someone finds out. Epaphroditus has the opposite attitude. He's concerned about himself. In fact, he's distressed that they did find out because he doesn't want them to be distressed about him. He knows it's not about him. And I need to be reminded of that. It's not about me. and It's not about you. It's about Jesus and his glory. And it's about building others up. It's about putting them before ourselves and following Christ's example of humble sacrifice and service for the good of others. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility to consider others more significant than ourselves. That each of us would not look on to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That we would have the same mind with one another. All these truths that we're seeing in the beginning of chapter 2. So Epaphroditus is a model of that. An example of that. Indeed, he was ill, verse 27. Near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Again, we want to be a Christ-centered, God-exalting church. But that doesn't mean that we don't honor people who have set an example in the Lord. We're not about exalting men, but the Scriptures tell us there is a way of praising others. The Proverbs 31 woman her, women, her children are going to rise, rise up and what? Praise her. Call her blessed. Not worship her, but praise her. There's a difference. Right? God calls us to honor those who set an example. And I think of, and this is not to, Ben didn't put me up to this, but I was just thinking as I was praying through this passage. Now that I've been two years in Mexico out of the country, and um, we love it there, we feel like, home, and I don't feel like it's that big of a sacrifice, but the biggest sacrifice that is that is there um, is being away from family, from our parents, and from our, and especially for our kids, being away from, from their grandparents and their cousins. Um, that's definitely the biggest sacrifice. But I think about Ben Jimenez here, who's left this country uh, for a good number of years to serve the far ends of the earth. Grace Harvard County, um, and that's something that we should honor. That's something that we should think about. Um, honor men like that who have said, who have left comfort, 
home and family and really good food, <laughs> the best food in the world, have left that behind for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> and it's not just pastors or elders, but other people who are serving in the church. Do you honor them? Do you see their example? Do you recognize it? Do you just take it for granted? Do you just look for things to complain about? Or do you say, how can I support them? How can I encourage them that they're sacrificing for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of building up Jesus' church? Epaphrodite risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service. And basically meaning what you couldn't give me, he risked his life to make up for that. He traveled a long distance. Um, travel in those days was incredibly dangerous. He risked shipwreck or bandits if it was by road. It doesn't tell us how he traveled. But he risked his life for the sake of um, to complete what was lacking, for the sake of the gospel. Are you willing to do that? Do you recognize that following Jesus, advancing his gospel, is worth risking everything? Is you recognize that that's what's going to bring true joy into your life? We become so consumer uh, consumeristic. Pastoring in Mexico, I'm more aware, and I say this with gentleness as a fellow American, but I'm more aware of how much the American church uh, has fallen into consumerism and a give-me mentality, and an entertain-me mentality, and meet-my-needs mentality. I'm not saying that's everyone here, but I've realized how much it's true in my own life. And like, like fish and water, we don't recognize that we're wet sometimes because it's just the air that we breathe. It's the change of analogy. It's just the culture that we're in, right? And we don't think about it. And I would challenge you, as I've been challenged by Mexican Christians, we're just so eager to serve, so eager to commit, so eager to sacrifice their time. Um, I've been challenged by them, and I would challenge you to imitate their faith, to imitate their example, to recognize we have been so blessed in this country. We have been blessed to be a blessing. And yet so often, we just, we're, we're actually pretty darn entitled. May God help us to repent of that. May God help me to repent of that. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart and open your eyes to areas where that's going on in your activity in the church. Is this how you would be characterized? If, if um, someone was writing a letter about you, would they, would they say this about you? That you have a genuine concern? That you're willing to risk all everything you have for the sake of the gospel? Now, I know we're not, we're not called to walk in that direction so that people will say those kinds of things about us. That's not the goal. But I'm just asking, would they say that? Is there enough evidence to convict you of passion for Jesus Christ? Of a single-minded focus? Like Paul says in chapter 3, this one thing I do. Does that characterize your Christianity? Well, 
That's the word that the Lord put on my heart for you this, this uh, afternoon. You got it right. I hope it's challenging and convicting to you. And we all have room for growth. We'll be able to spur one another on, love and good deeds. All the more as we see the day approaching.